Hi, folks, and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We'll start the show in just a moment, but first we wanted to make an announcement regarding Necronomicon 2017. Necronomicon 2017 is, of course, a weird fiction festival and convention that happens every other year in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. We've done live shows at the last two. We'd like to perform at the festival again this August. Specifically, we're talking about covering some of those C.M. Eddy Lovecraft collaborations that we've never examined. But to do so, we need your help. We are asking for donations so that we can afford to travel to Providence. Instead of doing Kickstarter this year, however, we're going to go back to our old school model from uh, the original show. Old school! Old school, we're going to do a ransom. Yeah! We have secured Andrew Lehman to do a full reading of The Whisper in Darkness. Yes! And when we reach our goal of $2,000, we will release it to the general public. We will release that reading for everybody to enjoy. Now, here's how this works. You can contribute by going to hppodcraft.com and clicking on the donate button. It's right there on the right side of the homepage at hppodcraft.com. Contributing five or more will get you a recording of the show. And this is important for attendees of Necronomicon. A donation of $15 or more will get you a ticket to the live show. So if you want to attend the show, you need to go to hppodcraft.com. Make that donation of $15 or more dollars per ticket. There are also other rewards. $40 will get you a, a Necronomicon t-shirt. And at $80, you get a general admittance ticket for the Necronomicon convention itself. 100 or more, you can pick a story for the show. This is not just a suggestion. We will cover your story. Yes, we will absolutely do it if you donate $100 or more. If you donate $500 or more, that gets you a sponsorship on the show. We will push your product live to a buying audience at Necronomicon 2017. And of course, the endorsement will also be a part of the recorded live show that will go out to backers as well. And 700 will get you a guest host position on a future show. If you're tired of correcting us in the solitude of your car, you can get on the air and give us what for in person. Yeah. Or uh, just be an expert or an enthusiast. Pick the story. Come on. Talk to us about it. Whatever you want to do. We're on board. Some of these rewards, of course, will go away. We will run out of those tickets for the Necronomicon. We will run out of those t-shirts. So I encourage you upon hearing this to come, please, and make your donation if those are things that you want. I think we'll have about 200 seats available for the live show. So please Give your $15 or more per ticket so you can come see us there. Let us know if you have any problems or issues with doing the donations, and I hope that we can raise this money and get our reading of The Whisper in Darkness out to the public very soon. So visit hppodcraft.com and help out. Now, on to the show. hppodcraft.com. No. In those days, no one ever thought of such a peril to the existence of the human race. I was young then, but I recall the times distinctly. Scientists at their annual meetings used to discuss the probability of the termination of the triumphant progress of the human race, but that it should come about in this fashion, this terrible and at the same time ridiculous fashion, that no one ever imagined. At the present writing, it does seem that the complete extinction of all mankind will be delayed, for there must be quite a number of small communities that have found refuge in the mines and caves. And though it is long since we have had any word from them, yet in the big cities such as Paris, Berlin, and London, where there are impregnable subway systems, men and women can still hold out against the terror that ravages the open country. But how long can we last? Things ain't sounding so good for humanity in this week's story. The Day of the Dragon by Guy Endor. A 
contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft, and that is why we are talking about him here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. This story was recommended to us by listener Jason Thompson, artist extraordinaire. Jason described this as a ridiculous, crazy, mad science monster story. It is a crazy, crazy story, uh, but wonderfully read Mm. by Wyatt Gray. Wyatt has some great audio recordings coming out this month from Darkwater Syndicate, specifically the anthology Shadows and Teeth Volume 2, which you will be able to find at Audible very soon. Wyatt reads the first collection as well, so if you want to hear more of that guide, head on over to Audible and find it. Glad to have Wyatt on again. Coming off our Mad Scientist Month was difficult. I just couldn't quite leave it. So I can't quit the Mad Scientists. I'm glad Jason recommended this one, and I gotta say, dude, it is as nutty as a fruitcake. It's it's wonderful. The writer of this piece, Guy Endor, is someone we haven't talked about on the show before. We have tangentially talked about Guy Endor. We've referenced his most famous work a few times, and that would be the novel The Werewolf of Paris. We talked about covering that in uh, Werewolf History Month. Right. It's a 1933 book. Many consider it to be to werewolves what Dracula is to vampires. Right. And it's long been on the list to cover if we do a Werewolf History Month, which maybe we'll be able to still squeeze in this year. Yeah. And when we do cover that, we'll likely give much more bio on Guy Andor. But there are some biographical facts that I think, in fact, may have bearing on the story. So mm-hmm. I was just going to okay. throw out a couple of those. Guy was born Samuel Goldstein in 1901. Uh, he died in 1970. His childhood was pretty rough because his dad was a was an investor and also a zany inventor who would jump from job to job, and he had trouble providing for his family. Guy's mother, possibly because of this instability in their financial situation, committed suicide when he was only four years old. You know, my initial thought was that perhaps he changed his name from Samuel Goldstein to Guy Endor later as a writer because Mm -hmm. it sounded, his original name maybe sounded too Jewish. Mm -hmm. A lot of people around that time would have changed their name. But apparently the father made the name change after his wife's suicide just to get them past the tragedy of it. Oh, God. So it was a name that he had from an earlier age. Dad did finally manage to sell some inventions enough to get the kids a boarding school education in Vienna, but that didn't last long. Soon they were back in Pittsburgh, and I think he just kind of vanished. They had to take care of themselves. Poverty dogged Guy during his college years, and according to a biography about him in The Werewolf of Paris, he paid his own way through Columbia University, doing all sorts of things to earn money, including renting his bed to a wealthier student while he slept on the floor. (laughs) Which is rough, but, you know, I can understand his motivation if he needs the money, but what's the deal with the wealthier student? (laughs) Yeah! Who's that guy? Why is he into that thing? (laughs) He's like, I got lots of money. I could get a hotel room even, but I don't know. This guy's renting me his bed, and I just kind of enjoy watching him suffer. (laughs) Puts me to sleep. (laughs) Sleep on the floor like a dog. (laughs) So the narrator is talking about how human civilization is coming to an end. There aren't many people left, and the ones that are alive have found refuge in underground caves and subway systems. He goes on to say how scientists never saw this end to humanity as even the slightest of possibilities. (laughs) There is apparently a terror that is ravaging the open country. He says, nobody imagined that the end of the world would happen in this terrible and at the same time ridiculous fact. <laughs> so we do have an author who is calling out just how nutty this is going to be. <laughs> yep. I mean, he's telling you right up front. And, and I think that's a higher level of self-awareness than usual, right? Like, yes. I don't think that level of awareness was in last week's story where the guy had the metal ball head, <laughs> for example. No. And the narrator is privy to the origins of what are, whatever this menace is. Yes. Few people, I suppose, he writes, are more capable than I of recapitulation the whole story from its completely insane inception of which I believe I was and remain 
the only living witness. Even again, he says it was completely insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing that scientists could have imagined. And he talks about the things that scientists did imagine as world enders, typical cataclysms. Right. Uh, some scientists thought maybe insects would be our downfall because there's so many more insects on Earth than people. The narrator goes on to talk about ants, how as insects go, they are some of the most complex and they cultivate plants, they keep domestic animals, they're masons, they make bridges. And then he ponders, the narrator says, well, what if the ant world organized against humans? And this is one of my favorite lines here in the whole story. What if ant scientists were to discover some <laughs> glandular extract that would cause them to grow to enormous size? <laughs> what? Like, this is the existential threat to humanity that scientists have already Positive. They've gone, oh, yeah, this is this could happen. Yeah. A mad ant scientist. We got to watch out for this, guys. <laughs> if they can develop soldier ants, they can develop mad scientist ants. <laughs> he goes on to say that bees have done something like this. But I looked yeah. it up as best I could tell, and I, I couldn't find anything more than the fact that bees will use hormones to control development. Yes. But that's not making giant bees the size of rats. I mean, I mean, I think he is talking about the queen bee. They pick up queen and they feed her royal jelly and that makes her much larger than the rest of the bees. Yeah. Because they like, they secrete it from their heads and that's how they feed her up and get her huge. Right. But yeah, nothing the size of a rat. No. <laughs> he goes on to suggest other more likely existential threats like a comet hitting the earth or the sun dying out. But he also says that statistics say that there are more people suffering from insanity than ever mm -hmm. before, and that eventually, if this trend continues, will be overrun <laughs> by the insane. That is like the perfect slippery slope argument. Just <laughs> shows how how stupid those arguments can be. <laughs> Just because something is trending up, <laughs> you go, well, it's trending up now, so it'll never stop trending up. Like, yep. more people are moving to Toronto than ever before. Therefore, eventually everybody will move to <laughs> Toronto. <laughs> And the city will explode from the weight of it and destroy us all. Yeah. No. Now, here's what's interesting. This story, written in 1934, mm -hmm. does say this. Would not, so other students asked, the increasing use of fuel disturb the balance of the atmosphere? Mm -hmm. Would not the use of oil by motor ships give rise to a scum of oil on the seas? In short, were we not about to blanket the earth and the waters and shut out the health-giving ultraviolet rays without which life is impossible? Wow. Even in 1934... It sounds like he's kind of hip to global warming. Yeah. I mean, he gets it a little wrong in the end there. The issue isn't blocking the ultraviolet rays because they're coming in no. just fine. It's the CO2 yeah. keeping the infrared radiation from getting back out. But yeah. I still found that interesting that this story is so full of dumb science, yet here and there, Endor will drop little clues that suggest maybe he has a better handle on it. He's making these suppositions for fun. I have a whole theory about this. We could talk about it at the end. Finally, he brings it to a conclusion by saying, whoever would have thought that our downfall would be from the return of a legendary creature. Ah. So there we go. We go back to the good old days. I'm guessing it's the early 1930s because, like you said, the story was published in 34. The narrator, he was a reporter. In upstate New York, some stonecutter opened up a rock that had an air bubble in it, and out of the bubble hopped a living toad. The rock was said to be a billion years old <laughs> and somehow trapped the frog in suspended animation. Mm -hmm. uh, the frog was captured and it was put on display in a local drugstore where they found it. Yep. The narrator had to cover the story, but he needed a scientist to comment on it. So he remembers his old teacher, Professor Crabshaw. He went to see him. Crabshaw's just the same as always, bent over a pile of examination papers. He says more seedy than ever, wearing the same acid-stained smock, 
even as his meek face bore the same old pale and drooping whiskers. So this is a sad sack scientist. He never really made it as a big time scientist. He was always just a step away from making a big discovery and was never really ever able to find work. He was only ever able to really find work as a teacher. He once did some research and had some theory about protozoa fluid, but then someone took his research and built on it and then they got rich. There you go. And that's the problem with being a researcher, right? Mm -hmm. Like you work your life away just to produce basically a shoulder for others to eventually stand on. The professor told him that this billion-year-old toad thing was preposterous for a number of reasons. The narrator wants to quote him about this, but then he gets cagey and he doesn't want his good name connected with such a ridiculous story. Mm -hmm. The narrator suggests to his editor that Professor Krebshaw could write it, and he figured he'd just turn it down because he just wants to get rid of this lame toad story. (laughs) But it's $200 for an article, which was too much for poor Krabshaw to turn down. As it turns out, Krabshaw has a wife who wants to be rich, and she is vocally terribly disappointed in him. So when she gets wind of this, she is all over him to write this article. The narrator, the professor, and his wife, Lizzie, have lunch together. Lizzie keeps pointing out the other professors and how they've managed to make a ton of money on Wall Street or through lobbying. Just take a look at Professor Whaleson. Just because he discovered that the mob reacts like a spoiled baby, he got himself a $100,000 a year job with an advertising house. Great. That's a really good description of the basic theory behind advertising, which is that people are a bunch of spoiled babies. And if you just just feed their basest instincts and show them shiny things, they're going to buy, buy, buy. I thought that was really clever. But also, clearly, there's something about this scene that is, I think, related to the tragedy of his childhood. Yeah. That his mother killed herself. Presumably over financial things. Because I don't think this this portrait of the wife is very flattering here. No, she does a pretty good job of emasculating the professor in yeah. front of his friend. So the narrator changes the subject to the article. Mm-hmm. And the professor tells him that the old toad is easily disproved and it will go on to be a really boring science story. Mm-hmm. And the narrator tells him, he's like, no, you can't do a boring article. You got to make it awesome. To which he responds, it's preposterous to suggest a toad could live a billion years. And then he says, that's it. That's precisely it. The more preposterous, the better. You are a scientist and you can give the preposterous that scientific veneer that will make it acceptable. So the professor starts to argue, but his wife jumps in and tells him that he should listen to the narrator if he wants to make something of himself. And he caves. The narrator says he knows this is yellow journalism, but it's moving papers. That's what matters. The article comes out and it says... Great Scientist Champions Billion-Year-Old Toad by Professor Paul Crabshaw, internationally famous biologist. It's got these great drawings of the toad's lifespan with pictures of dinosaurs, then glaciers, then primitive man, Egyptian civilization, Christ on a cross, Columbus, all that. And it sells papers and it gets the professor even more work. I love how it sets up that basic thing that, you know, rags use all the time. The Inquirer, the Sun, or the Star magazine or any of that stuff. Well, they'll take two pictures... A picture of some videotapes, you know, and a picture of a celebrity. And they'll say, sex tape. But all they did was just show you two (laughs) images next to each other. Like, he's proving the Toad's lifespan by just showing you pictures of Egyptian civilization. You know, I can completely say that article. And it's also completely the History Channel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or any cable channel that starts out trying to be educational. It usually doesn't last long. The Hitler alien shows, they get ratings. (laughs) And that's what everything flips over to. And I'm telling you that as preposterous as this story is... I think there are some really interesting things going on under the surface because we've just we've just watched the scientist essentially get turned out. Yeah. It shows how the best way for a scientist to make money sometimes is to actually refute science. Yeah. So if somebody's got an agenda against science, 
the first person you want on your side as a scientist. Yeah. Boom, here it happens. And we see because he's poor, because his wife berates him, these different very human issues get him to speak out against the very thing he's dedicated himself to. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really fascinating. Topical. To this day. <laughs> uh, he wrote about the sea monster and uh, wolf boys and plagues on Egypt and so on. This went on for several years and the prof made a lot of money mm-hmm. and his wife started living the high life. Yeah, he's churning out these bunk articles. But of course, he has lost the respect of his colleagues and the scientific establishment. And so this is like the ultimate one-two punch that will drive a man to weird science. He's got a preoccupation with a bunch of fantastic and bizarre stories and a desire to show everybody, you know, you look down on me and now you will learn. Textbook, man. Mm -hmm. So the professor and his wife invite the narrator out for lunch again and they talk about something the professor wants to share. He hasn't even told his wife about it, but it's this big announcement that he wants to make. Yeah. One morning, Crabshaw called me up and insisted that I must come see him at once. He had something quite marvelous to show. He had been fired. Well, at least... Asked to leave his job teaching because of his really horrible science. Uh, <laughs> he tells the president of the school that he's on the verge of making an announcement. And it is a announcement regarding this huge scientific discovery. He tells the president that he's going to show it off tomorrow. And he's invited other science guys to be there at this unveiling. He was going to write an article about it. But he thinks it would be better if the narrator wrote the article mm-hmm. to give it more weight. Because this is the real thing. He wants a third party to describe it. The narrator is dying to know what it is, so he tells him. By writing these articles, he's been hurting his reputation, as you said before, so he decides he wanted to do some real science and earn the respect that he deserves. Mm -hmm. And he comes up with this, alligators' hearts are crap. They just don't work very well. They only have two chambers, and that causes this form of auto-intoxication, that the blood the two chambers cause the, the unoxygenated blood to mix with the oxygenated blood, and this makes the alligator more lethargic. If they only had four valves in their heart, uh, they would function much more efficiently. Alligators are constantly drunk, basically, so <laughs> his big plan is to fix alligator hearts. No need for them to suffer any further. Yeah, he, he says basically they're all like uh, heart patients. Yeah. They're all like people who have blockages. Like human beings have blockages and all they can do is lay around all day, which is so I just imagine, you know, when you speculate on the behavior of animals, you always try to think how it evolutionarily advantages them. You know, yeah, they lay around all day so that they can save energy for these enormous bursts of speed, etc. But I just love the one kid in the class that goes, maybe they just maybe they all just don't feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever thought of that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I looked this up. okay, uh, And it's totally wrong. What? Well, I mean, they do have two chambers in their heart as opposed Mm -hmm. to the four chambers, but they actually have an extra set of valves that connect directly to their lungs. They can control whether or not the blood is going to their lungs or not. And the reason why they do this is because if they don't want it to go to their lungs, it won't ditch the carbon dioxide. And they use that carbon dioxide to aid in digestion. Mm-hmm. They have this control over it. I, I, I might be wrong because it was a very complicated science article that was a bit over my head when I was reading it. Yeah. But basically it said that their hearts are actually really efficient and they have way more control over their body than humans do. <laughs> well, of course, And there's a reason for the way that they behave. But now that I've read this story and saw how it came out, I, it did start to sound credible to me what he's saying. <laughs> Only just like drawing on my own experience. I, when I have seen alligators up close, they do seem kind of drunk. They do. I'm not saying that what you read or what you were just describing is wrong. I'm just saying that you have to teach both sides. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, dude, if we descended from chimpanzees, why are there still chimpanzees? <laughs> exactly. You just need to teach that. Yeah, I got to teach the argument, dude. Since this story is out here, biology teachers should have to also teach this theory. <laughs> <laughs> With his wealth, the professor sets up a lab and buys a bunch of baby alligators to perform surgery on them to give them four-chambered hearts. Mm-hmm. Lots of baby alligators die. Uh, but one seems to spring to life with energy he never saw in a gator before, but then it dies. However, this gives him hope. And so he continues his research. He got better and was able to keep the one alive. And, but, you know, all of these other baby alligators, he's just laying waste to. He even says, mm-hmm. my surgical technique was atrocious, which led to a very cute line. The poor alligators just turned up their pale and swollen bellies and gave up their alligatorish ghosts. <laughs> alligatorish ghosts. <laughs> Well, that first success was number 87. Right. And a lot. <laughs> so 86 other baby alligators died. And you know what? A lot of people don't know this, but the, you've heard the term 86. Like you yeah. get 86 from a bar or a casino. Uh-huh, that actually uh-huh. comes from this story. It's a reference to the 86 <laughs> baby alligators who <laughs> Professor Crabshaw threw out. So now you know. Now I know. Never forget the 86. After that, he did 10 more and had a full success with two of those. Yes. These gators were quick and active, unlike normal alligators that just sleep a lot and loaf around. They ate a ton and they were growing very quickly. They sound fun to watch, too. It says they were sleek and shiny and the way they flirted their tails and skimmed along the floor with their paws, moving so fast that you could hardly see them, was a pleasure. And their eyes were never closed. (laughs) These are super active gators. I kind of imagine the scene when Guy Endor came up with this, like he was at the L.A. Zoo looking at a few lethargic gators and thinking, they look so sad. And then he kind of dreamily (laughs) gazes off into the sky, imagining them all frolicking and happy, you know. His wife's like, honey, why are you smiling? Oh, it's nothing, dear. (laughs) Keep that in my pocket. The professor (laughs) figures his lab is going to be too small soon, so he has to move to a new place at an old platinum refinery. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking that these are going to be giant alligators, so we're going to get a giant alligator story. And that's what the reference is. The Day of the Dragons are just giant alligators. I was That's what I thought it was going to be as well. With some difficulty, he's able to to move them, uh, but they're fast and clever now. So, you know, always a good thing. Make predators better. (laughs) Make them smarter and stronger. They're not good enough. That's right. When something's dangerous, you want to just keep giving it more dangerous attributes. (laughs) My next step is to implant them with sarcasm and narcissism. (laughs) So he's got them in these big tanks and they swim around and they love it. And the professor seems very affectionate to them. Mm -hmm. As they develop, they have some changes. Their chests got larger and their head rose up higher than the rest of their bodies. And this was because of their necks that actually grew longer. So their actual body shape is kind of changing. They don't look just like alligators. They look like some other kind of uh, (laughs) creature. He also notes that their breath smelled nice. (laughs) Because, you know, alligators have bad breath. Oh, man, that was my favorite. As When he's talking about other alligators, he says, it is to be noticed, by the way, that they all have a bad breath. My alligators had a sweet breath. (laughs) (laughs) He's so into him. He's just making stuff up at this point. Yeah. Uh, Their tails changed as well, growing an arrowhead-like shape at the end. And 
at this point, I saw where it was going. Yeah. This isn't a metaphorical day of the dragon. <laughs> it is quite literal. Yeah, it was. I At first, I thought, like you, maybe it was just alligators. Maybe there was something that was going to be about the Chinese Zodiac or something. But yeah, oh, once, yeah, yeah. once these characteristics started developing, yeah. uh-oh, we're talking real dragons here. And as they continue to grow, they get these two weird mushroom-like protrusions on their back. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, these things are huge at this point, the size of an elephant each. To house them, he's had to turn the whole refinery into a pen for these things just because they're so big. And he's just dropping off tons and tons of food for them, like whole cows and sheep. (laughs) I'm glad it's addressed later because at this point, all I could think about was the monster poo in that place. Oh, my God. Because he makes no reference to shoveling it out, and he's just one guy, so I don't know how he could. But if he's feeding – because he can't even come close to the place, right? If he's feeding these guys whole cows through a chute – Oh, my God. There's got to be a lot of poo-poo down there. Uh, He also brings up the – they developed feelers like catfish or those Chinese dragons. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of these feelers whipped out and cut his arm – And he says he didn't think it was intentional because they love him. As days go on, these mushroom things on their back turn into, so I come in, wings. Wings. So they can jump around and flutter a bit, but not not really fly. So the dragons of myth became alligators? Yes. Or the four-chambered heart alligators died out, but the sick ones continued to breed and survive? Is that what happened? I think that maybe uh, one dragon developed this... um this defect and it made him lethargic and not a killer. And so yeah. humans were into that dragon and probably bred him. And then eventually it became alligators. I don't know. <laughs> For some reason that trait was favored. <laughs> I like this theory that you just pulled from thin air. It's no, no, that's good. what they're teaching in schools now. But I, I, I couldn't, <laughs> I, 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 one thing I couldn't help thinking of, and I'm probably not the only one was game of Thrones Yeah. Uh, during this whole thing. And I wonder if yeah. George R. R. Martin ever read this story. It's entirely possible. Possible. Because in that, series of books there is also a gradual de-evolution of dragons in the historical accounts yeah they get smaller they get smaller they? yeah they're thought to be extinct from the world but people do accept that they did once exist because they have their skeletons right. and there's chambers where you can actually see their skeletons becoming smaller and smaller because they were penned in by the targaryens over generations sure. and they couldn't grow if they didn't have the space to grow and that's why they kept right. shrinking and of course in those books the dragons come back to the world through magic which is a bit more credible than the alligator theory. But Khaleesi had a similar problem to this professor. These guys get big and they want to spread their wings. They got to get out of the pen. The dragons were getting very testy and they wanted to be free of their confinement. So the doctor knew, okay, I better show these things off soon because I'm going to need help. I'm not going to be able to deal with these. (laughs) Now's the time. We also find out the professor is planning on showing off his beasts to the science guys today. This meeting at lunch that he was having. He's like, yeah, we're doing it right now. Mm -hmm. They have a limo that takes all the scientists, bigwigs out to the site. When they get there, Crabshaw goes to check on the dragons, but then he goes nuts. They're gone. They busted out through the wall and escaped. I think they wrecked the whole building, actually. I think they pulled up. This is the whole building. It says before us were the heaped ruins of what had once been a red brick building of some size. So I think they just entirely, it's just a big, looks like a bomb site. Yeah, but the stench of this place is horrible. Yes, like the monkey house at the zoo, but multiple times worse. So there is some accounting for poo. I'm I'm glad to see. So the scientist bigwigs are grossed out. Don't believe the professor. I mean, the the smell of poo alone is, they just want to (laughs) leave. They're just like, this is horrible. You're a fraud. Screw you. And he's like, but look, there's footprints. They escaped. And nobody buys it. They're just like, we got to get away from the poo. He's like, look at all this evidence. This is way more than you guys usually get. With anything else you study, there's footprints, there's droppings, there's everything, but they just want to go. The The scientists demand their ride home in the limo. 
Yes. And it's even it gets worse, right? Because as they're going, he's got to listen to them talking about all the other famous scientific frauds like the Cardiff Giant, which we've talked about before on yeah. the show. Mm-hmm. And the professor is just crushed that he's getting lumped in with all these frauds. Yeah, so they, they drop them off, but our narrator and the professor are going back to his apartment, the professor's apartment, and uh, they hear a newspaper kid calling out the extra. And it says, Extra, extra, read all about it. Monsters attack Atlantic City. Four bathing beauties among missing. Many spectators of be- <laughs> bathing beauty contests are slain and many maimed by flying monsters. Do you have a little kid over there? Do you have a sassy little kid in a snap cap over there? <laughs> that is a long headline. <laughs> I think that's the opening lyric from the Newsies musical. (laughs) So the article goes on to say flying birds or something uh, swooped into a crowd of people on the beach at this Miss America pageant and took off with four women and injured a bunch of others. But these dragons being good monsters, they know where the babes are. Yeah. So they go right to the Miss America pageant. That's their first stop after breaking out of the only the only place they've ever really known as a you know. I wish that the headline had just been adjusted a bit so it said four bathing beauties among missing, also some other women too dirty and ugly to comment on. <laughs> Why? Yeah, out of a whole city of people. Yeah. Like they they decide, oh, here we go. Let's those look like the most appetizing <laughs> well, of also, all the people on the beach. Four women were murdered and they're still bathing beauties in the headline. <laughs> so it's taking it a little lightly. <laughs> or, I mean, they're daughters and wives. And yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. In typical mad scientist fashion, he is delighted that his creations are so amazing. Wow, they can fly and they can pick up things and they get away and nobody yeah. caught them and they're awesome. And They can approach women really easily. <laughs> and the narrator points out, he's like, you know, they killed a bunch of people. And the professor wants to get newspapers and send them to the scientists to show them that he wasn't full of crap. And the narrator says... You will do no such thing. These things, like I said, are killing people, and you made them, so you are responsible for that. Yes. Do you really want to go to prison for creating dragons? And I wonder about this, though, because Mm -hmm. if there's not a law for something, can you get in trouble for it? Well, there's not a specific law, but I'm sure there's some kind of negligence uh, that they could manslaughter. They'd probably be able to get him for. I think if he had a good lawyer, he'd be fine. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury... (laughs) What's wrong with a man wanting to watch a couple of healthy alligators play? Instead, all the lethargy and chicken eating were normally presented with Gatorland Zoo. <laughs> but no, you're right. It hits It hits the, the professor for a moment that some dragons have killed some people. How much would it cost for you to write and perform the entire defense for <laughs> Professor Crabshaw? Because that was brilliant. My one-man show. <laughs> Uh, then it, <laughs> it would be awesome too if it was like the show starts at eight, but there are instructions of the program that you have to read this whole story. So like the audience has to sit there quietly for half hour, forty five minutes to read this whole thing. Otherwise, they won't understand the performance. But it's just they didn't know that was going to happen. They're all like, "Do we really have to read this?" <laughs> oh God! His somberness over the uh, death of those bathing beauties does not last long. However, he keeps thinking about how awesome his youngsters are, as he refers to them, and mm-hmm. that they're only going to get bigger. And as he thinks about that, he gets giddy again. And he's just amazed they f- were able to fly the very first time out. You know, no human yeah. aviator could equal that. And he's even 
glad they snapped up the bathing beauties. It, it's further proof that these are dragons of old. He says, do you recall all the stories of the dragons demanding a tribute of fair maidens? Well, there you see it. <laughs> First thing they do is go after the beautiful virgins. Ha <laughs> ha! As they get to the house, the doctor realizes that the pair of dragons, of course, are male and female. Ha ha! There will be a new race of dragons. And then I think, well, how the hell is that supposed to work? They were surgically altered. Their DNA is exactly the same as it was before. That's like if you get plastic surgery to give you, you know, a cat nose, your kid's when they're born, are just going to have normal people noses. They're not going to have cat noses. Yeah, my great-grandpa got kicked in the face by a horse, and his whole face was really mushy looking, and we didn't inherit that in my family. Mm. I, I shit my pants whenever I see a horse, but nothing <laughs> physical has ever showed up. <laughs> Instead of going to his apartment, the professor tells the narrator to go up and tell his wife that he will, he'll come back later. The narrator knows that he is going to go back to his lab, where he thinks maybe the dragons will return because that's all the only home they've ever known. And the narrator goes, I can't stop him from going. So he agrees to tell the professor's wife and he's off. The narrator notes that none of the science bigwigs put two and two together, that none of them thought that these things were Crabshaw's dragons, mostly because, you know, it just doesn't fit with their paradigm. And also because even if they did believe it, they're all egomaniacs and they'd be mad that Crabshaw was getting press and they weren't. Yeah. It's a dim view of these other professors. The narrator calls Crabshaw's apartment the following day to see if he's still alive his wife answers the phone she asks if he knows where her husband is and of course he doesn't and she says well i keep getting these cablegrams collect <laughs> from london alexandria and singapore they each say don't worry stop m safe stop be home soon <laughs> the narrator thinks he knows what's going on elsif however declared well i can tell you this i don't believe they come from paul he can't be all over the world in one night And I'm not going to pay for any more of them. Perhaps you can tell me what it's all about? What did you two do yesterday? Why, nothing, I said, and blandly made whatever excuses I could think of quickly and then hung up. Actually, of course, I had a good notion of what had happened. It was plain that he was riding through the clouds on the back of one or the other of his flying alligators and could stop them where he pleased flying from continent to continent and over the oceans. Well, glory be to you, Paul. Now you are truly vindicated. Now you have your apotheosis. All the world will bow to you when you come alighting in the middle of Broadway on your pet dragon. The never-ending story. Ah. Is one of those dragons Falcor? I think so. <laughs> and that, I mean, you know, Khaleesi, man. Yeah. Flying around on the dragons. Maybe George R.R. R. Martin, uh, you know, actually did read the story. Well, except that Khaleesi looks cool on the dragon. <laughs> and I think you've never seen, like, a dumpy uh, science teacher riding a dragon before. But that is exactly what you're presented with here. Uh, and how fast can these dragons fly? Like in less than 24 hours, he got to Singapore? (laughs) Yeah. And how did he stop off and get these cablegrams out? Did he like go, okay, dragons, just wait here. I'm going to run in and send a message. (laughs) Well, how did, how did he communicate, get to Singapore with them? I mean, why didn't they, they don't know where they're going. They could have just flown him out to the middle of the ocean and dropped him. And is he totally windburned? (laughs) Because I mean, to get, get to Singapore in 24 hours, they have to be going hundreds of miles an hour. Yeah. You know, this is this is brain and a plesiosaurus level of crazy. <laughs> the narrator thinks, oh, the old guy's domesticated them. Maybe mm-hmm. he can replace airplanes 
with dragons and, you know, have them do lots of other things that machines can only do right now. Could be beneficial to mankind, yeah. Crabshaw sent a few more cablegrams from South America and Africa, but then they stopped coming. And no one to this day knows what happened to him. Yeah. The rest is history, he says. There's no other disaster like in Atlantic City. Lizzie moves on with her life. Crabshaw is forgotten. Several years go by, and then suddenly the dragons appear again. Thousands of them. Yeah. Apparently, they had just gone off to remote regions and bred. He tried to tell the authorities early on that they were alligators, but no one would listen. They had their own theories. <laughs> well, they were actually just like you because it says in the story, no one would try my simple explanation and see if alligators could really be cured of their heart trouble and become dragons. The mere <laughs> suggestion was dismissed at once on the grounds that acquired characteristics were not inherited, whereas these dragons bred true. Yeah. In short, the idea was too ridiculous to be discussed seriously. So again, the author is aware that acquired characteristics yeah, were not inherited. Yeah. Interesting. All the cities and villages of the world were plagued by these creatures. So mm. is this the prequel to Reign of Fire? Very well, it could be, because that's kind of the backstory, right? Just dragons return to Earth? Yeah, they. Yeah, I mean, it's a post-apocalyptic world that was driven to the apocalypse by dragons. So I looked it up, and there's a lot. The dragons returning to the Earth thing is kind of a trope. Outside of those two examples, there are lots oh, right, of yeah. other books and uh, sci-fi fiction and fantasy fiction where this happens. Mm. Dragons have been gone from the world for a long time, and now they're back. I don't know if this is the first version of that or what. Could be. They tried to use weapons. Anti-aircraft stuff had no effect. Their hides are too tough. They tried to poison them. That didn't work. Food started to be on short supply for humans. Uh, truly a post-apocalyptic situation. We ceased to hope and made the best of things and quietly blessed those valiant old New Yorkers who had constructed that so often ridiculed megalopolis with its impregnable fortress of skyscrapers and its marvelous network of underground passageways where we, besieged mankind, can make our last stand. Here we are safe for a time. That is to say, until famine gets us. We stave off that as best we can by utilizing every rooftop and planting countless window boxes and developing whatever mushrooms and other fungus growths will thrive in the dark. Here and there, too, we grow food under ultraviolet light, but current is almost priceless. How long can we last, seeing that our existence is ultimately dependent on the constant excursions of volunteer corps who are risking their lives for the community? Our numbers grow daily less. A few, we are told by rare travelers, survive in the far north, where dragons rarely go. A few survive in mines. No doubt there must be other communities, say in London and Berlin and other places where there are extensive subways, but it's years since we had any communication with them. What is to be the end of all this? I ask myself. Are we to perish utterly? I think that I shall cause this tale to be engraved on stone, so that if ever the human race arises again, it may read and know how the damnable inferiority complex of one Paul Crabshaw made all mankind the prey of fabulous monsters. And that's the end of the story. God bless it. That is one of the more entertaining stories we've read on the show in quite some time. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It's preposterous, but apparently self-aware. Yeah, it's got a kind of postmodern irony 
to it, not to sound too pretentious, but the idea that like <laughs> clearly the author on he knows some science, yeah. yet he presents this very unscientific stuff, and we have a microcosm in that in, in the story where he convinces the professor to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So he's writing in the yellow journalistic tradition that he convinces the scientist to do, and maybe there's a deeper message in here, and maybe I'm reading too much into it that the destruction of the world comes from this very sort of thing where we mm. go after what's a more attractive idea or what is a better story or what sounds better than what's mm -hmm. actually scientific. Wow. Maybe. I mean, yeah. that suggestion I find in there just from a couple little things that were dropped. And and, sure, and the sure. author, it seems from his history, is a pretty intelligent guy. You know, like yeah, I yeah. think that he might have had literary intentions beyond just telling a fun dragon story. So maybe that's there, maybe not. But hey. Definitely uh, relevant nowadays as well. Well, that's yeah, that's the thing. These That's probably why these things kept jumping out at me because yeah. so many scientists can be compromised by money. It's a sad thing. All right. Well, that was an awesome story. Thanks again, Jason Thompson, for recommending it. Next week, we are going to go back to William Hope Hodgson and do a story called The Derelict. One listener I want to talk about right now is Wyatt Gray, who did an amazing job reading this us uh, malarkey today. Yes. Wyatt, thanks for joining us once again. Remember to head over to Audible for, to check out Shadows and Teeth, Volumes 1 and 2, which feature more of Wyatt's excellent work. That's all we've got for this week on our show. This has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs> Turn around.